This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest is a whiz-bang columnist, a novelist, and a radio host, as well as a TV film writer and producer. For years, he hosted McIntyre in the Morning and Red Eye Radio. He has gone on to write over 500 columns for the Los Angeles Daily News. He is a frequent contributor to the Daily Beast and was recognized as the best columnist in 2010 by the California Newspaper Publishers Association. His upcoming novel, Frank's Shadow, is now available for pre-order. Coming up is my dialogue with an analog man trying to survive in a digital world. Stay tuned for Doug McIntyre. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Pat, thank you for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be with you. It's mine. Well, let's just look at this as a time capsule for two old guys who love nostalgia. Behind me, I have a giant poster of Gene Shepard, who most people know from A Christmas Story. And Gene was so foundational to my entire worldview. And he has been branded because of Christmas Story, which everybody sees now on Turner on Christmas Eve, as a purveyor of nostalgia. And the irony is, is that that was really the filmmakers who grafted the nostalgia on it because Gene was actually very cynical about nostalgia. In fact, the most shepherd scene in that is the little orphan Annie decoder ring when he, as a kid, is crazed to get this thing and then he finally gets it and realizes it's a crummy commercial. Drink Ovaltine. Right. Yeah, he was exposing all kinds of social mores. He was a great subversive late night guy because that's what it was. There were thousands of rabid fans that stayed up past their bedtime and had a transistor radio under their pillow. And he would tell these great stories that were unpredictable and extemporaneous. I mean, that's the thing. This is a precursor to people like Garrison Keillor. And yeah. The nostalgic part was a little bit of a, a candy store to trick you into the back. I think so, too. I remember he would tell stories from his childhood growing up in Indiana and army stories and whatnot. But as a kid, I always remember him saying, when I was nine, I didn't have secrets. I was a secret. <laughs> you would get these That's little good. pearls from him that would, that had such stickiness. Uh, were you aware of his sale of the book, I Libertine? Yes. In fact, I have a hardcover copy of it, which is a rare find. It was only published in hardcover in England. But the, just briefly for folks who aren't aware of this, Gene understood that the New York Times book review, like the top 10 list, was bullshit. And that the way it was really done was somebody from the Times would call around to a bunch of bookstores and say, what's hot? And the seller would look at the stack of the clunkers that he couldn't move if he gave them away and would just say, this is hot, to just get them out the door. So he told his audience, the next day, I want you to start calling around and ask for a book. And he made up this fictional title, I, Libertine by Frederick Ewing, a book that didn't exist. He made it up on the air. And the next day, his audience started calling around. And, and sure enough, it made bestseller lists in the Wall Street Journal. In fact, it was banned by the Society of Decency in uh, Boston. It didn't even exist. Right. Yeah, he had bamboozled all of these folks. Yeah. And, and really the publishing world, I think, more. But subsequently, it became a book. Yeah, he wrote it. He wrote it afterwards. He was already on the bestseller list. So he and Ted Sturgeon, a sci-fi writer, they banged out this cheap paperback to take advantage of it. But it was still under the pseudonym, right? It was still yes, under the yeah. fake name. Frederick Ewing, yeah. Although his picture was on the back cover. The thing about being a fan of Shep was that everybody who listened to him thought that they were the only one. His today he would be a podcaster, by the way, because the show was forty-five minutes, and it was ten fifteen to eleven p.m. on WOR New York, and then he did a two-hour live version from the Limelight in the Village. But 
when you were a kid with that transistor radio, listening to this weird man telling hilarious stories through the pillow, you thought you were the only one. And then one yeah. by one, you kind of found your classmates that were also part of the coven. And the next thing you knew, you <laughs> right. kind of had your own secret society. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. It was yeah. really a a thing that was about finding it. You found it. You know, it's strange. We had moments in our life where that was similar for me with Monty Python, when my parents would cross through a room and didn't they couldn't understand what was happening on television or why we were laughing if we were watching Monty Python. You know, but Pat, I always thought that your work reminded me a lot of Jeans, and that's the highest compliment I can give to somebody. Uh, and I know Jerry Seinfeld, your former boss, he talked about Gene as being foundational to his comedic point of view, and it certainly was for me. And another thing that Gene said late in life that I found fascinating, he said, I don't believe in undiscovered talent. He said, talent demands attention. And I think that there is some truth to that. Now, we can talk about being, quote unquote, discovered through your creativity, Maybe it's a microscopic audience, and that's possibly, let's face it, with as eight zillion ways that you can put your stuff out there today, and not everybody's going to get 14 million hits for opening up a toy, like some of those kid opening unboxing videos with 24 right. million right. views. Right. But the thing is, is that I think that there's something really right about what Gene said, is that if you are a person who is interested in creating, you will do that habitually until eventually you'll find your niche. And maybe it's a small niche, but the thing is at least you're putting it out into the world and where it goes from there, no one knows. But the people who just dream of doing things, but they don't actually make the commitment to do the work, those are the people that are greatly frustrated. Even if you have a tiny audience and you're making no money whatsoever, but at least you're exercising to the most of your abilities, then I think that you're living a creative life and that's really three quarters of the battle. Well, I would hang that on fear. Well, that's just sort of a big word. The fear of what will people think of me? The thing that keeps p people from taking action on a crazy idea is that they think themselves out of it. I had a great invention for a shoe something. Why, why didn't you do anything about it? Well, I mean, it's expensive. And they are great at generating uh, lists that are excuses of why it's a waste of their time. Yeah, and the other thing too is, and I've had this conversation with my buddy, Mike O'Connell, and my wife, uh, Penny Pizer about our middle-class upbringing and our middle-class sensibilities. Now, you know, we always used to talk about this, that why in the comedy business, catastrophe is funny because a nice person behaving nicely is nice, but there's not a lot of tension there and there's not a lot of consequences to it. Like a, a metronome takes the cans down to the curb on Thursday night and brings them up early Friday morning. That's a lovely neighbor, but not a funny neighbor. And, and, and the thing is about... When you are raised with a strong middle-class sensibility, as I was and my wife was and others, many others, that's a great way to live your life, but it can be a burden when you're trying to push through that in order to get to the other side of just the middle-class sensibility, you have to worry about, well, what's my mother and father going to think if they read this right, or, or see this? You have to be willing to make your mom think you're a pervert. <laughs> it is really what it comes down to. And then as you get older, it's the same fear. What are my th kids going to think of me? Well, here's the easy part. Is my kids won't read anything I've written, right. so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> this is just relates to taking the cans to the curb. I saw the greatest picture on the internet, but a guy who really wanted to get back at his HOA. And it had to do with the trash cans. And, you know, you had to have a little fenced enclosure around your trash can, which is essentially the same height as the trash can. And it's just you're hiding your trash can behind it. So after some fuss, he built, it was like four or five pickets in front of the trash can, but he made the middle one stick up higher so it looked like it was flipping off the neighborhood. <laughs> That's funny. To me, that kind of moment is like, take a problem and make it even worse, which makes it even funnier. Yes, absolutely. I, I actually refer to Trash Night at our, I call it Suburban Thunder, because uh, you, you hear the cans rumbling in the dark. And there's always one guy who at 11.30 forgot to pull the cans down. And he's the one that's out there with three cans rumbling across the quiet <laughs> night sky. And you can hear him for about five kilometers in every direction. So I love that you mentioned Gene Shepard right up top because I am a fan and I love his use of words and his tone and his willingness to take us down back alleys and around corners. And I see it in your work as well. So I listened to your famous turkey story on your website. And I'm not gonna ask you to retell it fully 
but it, it, it has the same kind of tone to it. And, I, and why I'm mentioning it is that I'm hoping that the listener will go to DougMcIntyre.com and give a listen to this. It's a seven-minute story that you told year after year when Thanksgiving would come around. And that's how my stories began. They were true stories about Christmas morning and unwrapping gifts and my worst Halloween costume. And they became stand-up comedy, and they became plays, and they became other things. But there is something great about a campfire story that reels everybody in on what's what's around the corner. And they feed other stories, too. I, I used to, because there was a time, and I don't make a secret of this, there was a time when I, I just uh, liked the booze more than the booze liked me. And, and I used this particular story to illustrate the warning signs that I missed at the time. It took me a while. But at one Thanksgiving, I was coming home at God knows what hour uh, after last call, and I decided I'm going to cook a Thanksgiving turkey. I stopped at the grocery store and bought a, like a 14 or 16-pound frozen turkey <laughs> and brought it home. I had no idea how to cook anything, and I didn't have a pan to cook it in, so I put it in a paint tray that wow. I got out of the garage. That wasn't a clean paint tray either, by the way. It had all the enamel paint on it, and I knew you had to throw some water in it. I threw it into the oven. I spun the wheel, and I don't know what number it went to. And then I immediately passed out in bed with a shoe in my hand. You know, I got one <laughs> shoe off. I slept for like 11 hours. The house was filled with smoke. I fanned my way into the kitchen and pulled out what was now. It had been a turkey, and now it was basically charcoal briquette. Right. Maybe a Cornish game hen smoldering. And I walked out to the curb as my neighbor's were coming, their family had arrived and were going into the house for Thanksgiving dinner, all in their finery. And this drunken, hungover neighbor <laughs> is stumbling to the curb with a paint pan and a smoldering lump of former turkey meat and one shoe on his foot, dumps it into the trash and says, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. And in I go. I would tell that story uh, at request on Thanksgiving on the air. And then it would open the floodgates to other people's holiday disasters which includes my all-time definitive favorite L.A. story, which is a guy, he worked at a muffler shop, and they had a co-worker who was having a hard time, had been divorced, and everything was going wrong. So they, they chipped in, and they bought him a turkey for, to take home for Thanksgiving. He had lost his driver's license. He's waiting for the bus uh, the day before Thanksgiving and gets caught in a gang crossfire. Gangbangers firing, bullets oh, pinging. Yeah. He's eating concrete. He's trying to hide in the sidewalk. And then the cops come and everybody runs away. And now they're putting the little yellow numbers out all over the place. And they're taking his statement. And it finally says, okay, you can go. And he picks the bird up to, to go. And they say, you can't take the turkey. Oh, no. He goes, why not? Because well, it took two rounds. And now it's evidence. Yeah, that's funny. Because just literally in the middle of that story, it triggered a story for me. I remember at the time when my wife was pregnant with our second child. And she was pretty far along. She had a craving for a turkey first thing in the morning. It wasn't Thanksgiving, so for some reason, we must have gotten a, a grocery store free turkey or something for spending enough that it was in our freezer. So I put that in the oven at like 10 in the morning and cooked it all day long, you know, as you're supposed to. And this beautiful aroma in the air and everything is fantastic. And then as I take it out, because she's pregnant, she's suddenly disgusted by the thought of the turkey and I have been basting it and lovingly making it. And I mean, this is the best turkey I ever made. And now I'm told to get it out of the house. And if you've ever seen the expression on your friends or neighbors faces, I went across to people I didn't know that well, knocked on their door with this gorgeous golden turkey. And they go, what's wrong with it? I go, nothing's wrong with it. Nobody cooks a turkey for six hours and then gives it away. So I'm like, well, and I kind of explained, and they're like, okay, we'll take it. And I said, look, I'm coming back over for turkey sandwiches tomorrow. But I like the fact that your neighbors, their first impulse was, what's wrong with it? Yeah. Because my wife, Penny, she took a sliced, cooked Thanksgiving turkey on Thanksgiving Day back to Ralph's supermarket because she cut it open and it smelled funky. And she proudly says, well, they gave me my money back. And I go, of course they did. They thought you're a crazy person. <laughs> you're, you're in the store with a hot, steaming, sliced turkey. They gave you the money just to get you out of the store. <laughs> That's really, really funny. Well, now, you've written a lot of columns. I guess I want to ask you a little bit about the process of writing the column and also the importance of that headline to grab people's attention, which as good as anybody's story is, you got to get that door open to them. You know, the headline thing, I'm glad you asked about that because maybe somebody will hear this and answer this for me. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. 
And I've been working for the Southern California News Group, which is the LA Daily News, the Orange County Register, Long Beach Press-Telegram, etc. And I cannot get anybody to tell me why the person who writes the article can't write the headline. I don't know that either. They have a separate person. I always put a headline, and sometimes they use it. But I'd say three-quarters, maybe 80% of the time, they don't. And I'd say 50% of the time, whoever wrote the headline didn't read the article because frequently the headline will contradict the point that's being made in the column. And I cannot figure this out. I can't figure out why they would trust you to do 1,000 words or 850 words, but you can't write four words on top of it. I do not know. But that's the same mystery of why the people on Jeopardy don't get to sign their own name on that chalkboard. Those scrawly signatures that make them look like morons, those are not their signatures. I didn't know that. But you see, I judge harshly the people who <laughs> like put little hearts over the eyes or triple underlining their name or exclamation points. I root against them. That is not their signature. Oh, I feel bad about that for decades. That's some production assistant whose job. And you think you're making this person. If I was a serial killer profiler, I would say that guy did yeah. it. He's the guy. Grab him now before you get him to ask any more questions. This podcast is educational because I had no idea that was the reality. Let me just say a couple of the titles of columns that I saw. There was nudist want better looking nudists. I don't don't remember that. There was one called Oatmeal Kills. There was one called Gender Neutral Cats. There was one called Millennials Are Killing Off Paper Napkins. But it's funny because this is kind of like early clickbait. I think that's what headlines pretty much are anyway, is to get people to read them. But that's what was always my objection is that I would spend uh, and sometimes more time trying to come up with a clever headline than the actual column. And then they would write something very flat to go with it. And it's like, well, what's the point of reading that? It's boring. And I always think that the writer is what the tone is. That's where the humor is. That's where the meaning is. Let them uh, name their own baby. Right. In fact, I'm going to give you the privilege of, of naming the episode of this podcast. I always have a little snarky two or three word thing. So you think about that and you will be able to finally have that privilege. Okay. But I can almost guarantee it'll be Doug talks too much. There it is. That was what my wife loved about having me on the air because she could turn it off if I was on the radio. But in the house, she was stuck with it. Now, did she ever call in? Uh, yes. In fact, when I was doing Red Eye Radio, when I first met you, which was midnight to 5 a.m., I used to actually occasionally say, if you can't get past our call screener at 3.20 in the morning, you should seek help. Because if you are deemed uh, not airable at 3.20 a.m., then that's really on you, not us. But I used to occasionally implying that my wife is a boozer. And inevitably, she would wake up a couple times during the night, turn the radio on. And I can't tell you how many times she turned on just in time to hear me saying something that was blatantly untrue. <laughs> and then she would call and it sort of became a thing after a while. But yeah, that would happen. I have that relationship with my mother, who, by the way, is a listener of this podcast. So I will get a call right after this when I tell the story. But she would, in, in Omaha, when I would go do morning radio as a guest, she would call. Now, the first time she called, I had no idea the what or the why she was calling, right? They said, oh, we've got a caller. And it was my mom. And she was like, on your way home, bring some syrup. And like, it was an intercom or something. Yeah, and I was like, great. mom, this is for people who want tickets to the show. Or <laughs> oh, you're too big. You can't get syrup for your dad. Oh, and that's she great. <laughs> just harangued me. And the DJ loved it. The guy was like going crazy. So she caught she caught on her friends were like oh that was funny so ever since she doesn't plan it but even at a live show if i'm doing stand-up and say well my parents did this crazy thing she'll go we still love you pat and i was like please oh that's hilarious like, they don't know that's you're funny here. just leave me alone well they do now now they knew she was there <laughs> yeah but she does call frequently after the podcast as if she's sitting and having coffee with you and i it's the three of us and so she fact checks Oh, your grandfather didn't have a DeSoto. I think he did. No, he didn't. You know, I go, well, I can't retract it. We recorded this a month ago. You know, it's already aired. Nobody cares. And then I call my uncle and he goes, yeah, yeah, your grandfather had a DeSoto. I go, no, go call her. Call her and straighten her out. Right. Let her write a retraction to the podcast. When you were growing up in Nebraska, what did you see that said, I want to do that? One thing, Johnny Carson. And I didn't know it was everything, but he did so many things and he did them so well and so effortlessly 
that when you watched him, his interview style was unbelievable. His monologue, his recovery from a bad joke. Like I used to take his recovery and thought that was something I had to write towards. Obviously, it was just his wit and his shrug off and his interplay with the band. But I actually wrote recovery jokes for bad jokes. And so when I moved to L.A., I had a stack of jokes where if the audience would give me the stink eye or moan or something, I'd go, you're looking at me like I'm the last pick in gym class. But Jerry Seinfeld was somebody who told me, if you didn't tell the bad jokes, you wouldn't need the recovery jokes. Quit writing recovery jokes. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. But Johnny had an amazing gift of gab. He had this sort of breadbasket naivete when he talked about politics and other things. Like, he could play all sides of the fence. And he did as well with an unknown person, woman that had potato chips shaped like president's heads or dressed up chickens or whatever, as he did with the biggest celebrities. And he treated everybody like they were their pal. Those episodes with Buddy Hackett and other people, you just would howl at them. And I got away with the fact that my dad would allow me to sneak into his office and watch it at night when I was supposed to be in bed. He'd call me if there was a comedian on. This is where we're, we're analog people because we're waxing nostalgic about the old days of Johnny Carson. But <laughs> w w what got lost in the shuffle from that generation was he let the guests be the stars. He had the opening monologue. He had a desk bit. And then when he brought the, the guests out, the guests were featured and he helped them, but he stayed back and he let them shine. And that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, one of the things, I mean, it's not that Jimmy Kimmel doesn't have great talent. I think he has great talent and Jimmy Fallon also, but it's so hyperkinetic. It's almost like watching a game show. And to me, the conversation is lost there. Right. The sense of conversation is lost there. Well, not to mention that everything is extremely promotional. Yeah. Right. And that's fine. We know that there are things that are being sold. Speaking of that... <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about your book. I know how eager you are. Are you kidding? In fact, that could be the title of the, of the podcast. I love that. That's even better than Doug talks too much. Doug talks too much about his book. All right. Actually, we may we, have maybe to fix we can that get a post. longer marquee, right? <laughs> Do you remember the first joke that you wrote that really killed? I remember the one that was the most like a joke, which was that my Mr. Potato Head got run over by a lawnmower, and I called it Mr. Hash Browns because it was scarred up on one side. But it had a structure of a joke. And this right. was well before joke writing was in my consciousness. Gotcha. I remember I wrote a, a, a high school school assembly. We did a Christmas show. And I wrote a joke saying, because, you know, every high school has announcements. And one of the announcements is, you know, lost and found. It said uh, a, a men's wallet with no ID in it and a $10 bill was found in the locker room. Would the owner please line up after the assembly? Right. <laughs> uh, and, and then I said, whoa, well, look at that. High school people laughed at my crap. Right. And it was fun. That was a fun audience to shoot for. One of our, my buddies wrote for the school newspaper, which was a big deal. But we would make things up to try to get them to write stories about us. And they were completely fraudulent. We made up a fake band that we were members of, and we created an album cover that we shrink-wrapped so you couldn't see there was not a record in there. And we started to sell these records without there being any records to sell. Oh, perfect, Like yeah. collecting money. And so people wanted to hear some tunes. The lie was getting us deeper into trouble. But what we did was we got, we were theater rats, so we got you know to be in the auditorium after school, and we locked the doors and played loud music from some obscure band. We were, we had no instruments. We had nothing to go on. So we would just let them hear that leak out through the doors that we were practicing. And, you know, for we'd just be in there for 90 minutes or something. And we ultimately had to return, turn the money in and, and confess. But we had already had a big story in the school newspaper about our band, which was called uh, Johnny Cool and the Holidays on Ice. So each of us had a holiday name based on our name. Mine was Patrick St. Day. It was just kid stuff. Well, that's a shame you had to give the money back. Let me change the subject. You've done a couple of things along the way where, which caught my eye, which was you had that opportunity to moderate a conversation with John Cleese. I love Monty Python. I mentioned it earlier. He's one of the guys that really, in addition to everything we know about his humor, he really advocates for creativity, for writing and thinking. And he did this whole business of creating training films and commercials where he was constantly cranking something out. And I'm just impressed by his amount of work and his thoughtfulness with all of that. 
He was a fascinating guy. I MC for the Distinguished Speaker Series in Southern California. I've been doing it for a long time, and it's a great gig because it's big theaters, and it's always interesting people. And, and people that I, I, I did five nights with Misty Copeland this past year, and it took me into a world that I knew absolutely nothing about. In order to do the research, you do a deep dive into the background of the person. And usually the show business people like Cleese or Misty Copeland don't have a stump speech. The politicians almost always want to do a speech. So the show business people, it becomes an evening with where you're on stage with them for 90 minutes and you just have a conversation. And Cleese was like that. And he was wonderful. He was big, curmudgeonly, hugging, larger than life. And he is. He's a big man. But he was larger than life in just his personality backstage and, and sort of the antithesis of Steve Martin, who I also spent four or five nights with. I forget how many shows we did. And Steve, very controlled. Uh, he wanted. He was very focused on the gig, from the car to the stage for sound and lights. Then in, in the dressing room, he wanted to go over, what are we doing tonight? And the only person, I've probably done a hundred of these, he's the only person who ever wanted me to meet after the show to say, what are we doing the next night? Mm. And after three nights, he was fine. But Cleese is also one of my heroes, and Monty Python, one of the singular satirical genius groups. I mean, they really were the Beatles of comedy in the sense mm -hmm. that comedy is just simply different because of them. Although I notice now that my younger friends, people in their early 40s, they find it, it really as incomprehensible as our parents found it when we were watching it, uh, either because the accents throw them off or the reference levels of Hegel and philosophers and the historic references don't resonate. But I still can fall into a, a, you know, a YouTube wormhole and be gone for an hour watching them. <laughs> right. Well, my 22-year-old son, who's an editor on this podcast, you know, he's a Holy Grail fan, like, like oh, that's good. among his very top movies. And so I love that moment. Like, I love that moment when we're, we're able to watch those things together at the right age and talk about them and laugh about them. My whole life has been one continuous obsession about some obscure arcane piece of something after another. I mean, it's just, I've driven my family crazy with my various obsessions, including my poor wife. But I went through a Marx Brothers phase, which really kind of continues. And, and when I was 12, 13, 14 years of age, uh, I pity my family for what they had to put up with. You know, in, this, in the early 70s, when Python came onto American television, that just became, I mean, they were on Sunday nights, I think, on PBS, and then Monday morning, everybody, everybody in school was just recreating the entire show after having seen it once. So, you know, it was really formative at that period of time. Well, speaking of things that you were obsessed with, you do have an obsession with Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And I'm going to use that moment to transition to the book as well. The book is called Frank's Shadow. It's a recent book that can be found on pre-sale right now, I'm sure, on Amazon. But it is being released soon. And the title, Frank's Shadow, references the main character, Danny's father, Frank, and also Frank Sinatra, who lived during the exact same period of time. They were born and died on the same day in an in a odd coincidence. And this character, Danny, knows everything there ever was to know about the dash between the dates of Frank Sinatra's life, but he, his dad is a complete mystery to him. But how long have you been working on this novel? Well, a long time, because the book was really born on May 14, 1998, the day Frank Sinatra died. I have a friend of mine whose dad died that day. He was the same age, and they were both, Sinatra was 82, and Pete McGovern's father was 82. They weren't born the same day, but it struck me then that, you know, one death is ricocheting off of satellites globally, and the other death is in the back of the paper by the mattress ads and the horse racing results, and you have to pay to put them there. So it started as sort of a, a contemplation on the nature of fame, and then when I started writing it without an outline, and I wrote myself into a dead end. I needed a deep, dark family secret that Danny would uncover about his father, and everything I came up with was either awful or stolen or both. So I just, I, it just sat. Uh, you know, I would take it with me. It probably has the the manuscript probably has a million air miles. I used to take it with me every time I flew somewhere, figuring I'll work. On, and 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 I made no progress. And about six years ago, all of a sudden. The light bulb went off. I was reading something else. And then I said, oh, this is, this is, this, I can make a secret out of this. And then I couldn't wait to get to it. So when I left KBC Radio after 25 years, my last day was December 14, 2018. 
And January 4th, 2019, I started on page one again and worked on it. And now July 18th, it'll be in stores, Barnes and Noble and online and all that good stuff. So 25 years. So whatever is said about me as a novelist, Pat, prolific is not going to be one of them. <laughs> well, you're diligent. You worked a long time. I mean, yeah. your, your stick to itiveness, you're getting an A+. Plus. Well, you know, and I think that that, I, I, I'm going to circle back to what I said before about there's no such thing as undiscovered talent. And again, I'm not saying that this has to do with fame. I always believed in the idea. I thought this is a real story. Frank Sinatra, it's not about Frank Sinatra. He's purely counterpoint. It's just a parallel life. But I did know a lot about Frank Sinatra because I do think he's a great artist. So I was taken by, no, I don't care about the Rat Pack crap. I never cared about any of that stuff. I cared about the music and how he made that music and his his commitment to excellence in recording in particular. So I thought, well, I know this and I'll use him as the parallel story. But the fact that I didn't give up on it, I'm, I'm really proud of it because I, I think the book came out fine. It's quite good. So let me speak. Don't, don't sabotage yourself as an author. It, it, it's quite good. Your writing is excellent. There's fantastic phrasing and uh, colorful characters. And it's very, it's a very dynamic read. You didn't disguise the name. The main guy's name is Danny McKenna and you're Doug McIntyre. I actually stole the name McKenna and the house from my friend Steve McKenna, who I went to high school with, who uh, grew up directly across the street from the Scobie Grill in Little Neck, Queens, New York. And I, I was always taken by the, his house literally was five feet uh, on this little hill looking into a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year diner. Uh. <laughs> and I always loved that. I thought, that is a window on a bigger world. <laughs> right. But I can tell that because the details are so lush. And that's really what a good uh, writer does in whatever form you're doing it in. Because you're a columnist, you're a talk show host, you're a novelist, all of these things. But really, you're a storyteller. And this is the long form that took the long way around to get there but you also found the thing that makes it a story worth telling and it takes time for that to, to happen sometimes well this certainly did but for me anyway uh, now having done it it's like everything else when i started writing individual jokes and then you write a little blackout sketch or something and then eventually you work way up to a half hour sitcom and then you learn how to write screenplays so once you do it once, then you say, oh, I kind of understand how this is done. But use of the word storyteller, ultimately, I think that that's what creativity is, is creating something that didn't exist prior to you. Whether it's a, a painting or a piece of pottery or a poem or a novel or a movie or whatever it is you're doing, a dance, you're telling a story. And each of these different areas has its own rules and formats but the the through line for all of them is that you're telling a story and if it's a painting you're pa telling a story in the choice of color and in one frame uh still photograph it's one frame but you're telling a story a great photographer can tell a story in one frame a and i think that that's ultimately what we're doing here is well you know you leave a little piece of yourself behind in the stories you chose to tell in your book, I remember the phrase, history wounds everyone. There's three words that make me go, oh, what does he mean by that? It opens up a whole cauldron of thoughts. And do you know exactly what you meant by it? Yeah, because this, this character is a historian and his father was born in Ireland and came to the U.S. in 1929. And it was the tail end of the potato famine from the 1840s. It was still sending people into exile from Ireland, or one in nine Irishmen starved to death. They were still sending their sons and daughters across the pond uh, because, for opportunity. But the point was, when you talk about the Trail of Tears or the Holocaust or chattel slavery, the potato famine sounds silly. It sounds like, you know, you said, no potatoes have the onion rings. But the thing is, is that every culture has its own wounds from the past. As a culture, for instance, we, right now people are all up in arms that we, we seem to be obsessing over uh, racial issues and gender and class issues and things like that. These are stories that we're just now really getting around to addressing. Certainly the indigenous people, the First Nations people, the Native American people, we're just learning their story. 
There's a new biography by David Moranis of Jim Thorpe that I'm about three quarters through. And it's fine, but it's like David Moranis is trying to undo 350 years of exploitation of the Native Americans in this one book. It's like, we got that we were bad to the Indians by page 100. And there's two or 300 more pages of ashes and sackcloth. You know, if you go into any people's story, you will find that there have been moments in their history that were awful. And, and I just think that that's, that's part of people's what makes people who they are. Right. Well, the hard part, of course, is discovering that you're part of the awful people yes. that hurt everyone else. Or even you may not be aware of it. It was your grandparents. It was their parents. It was somebody else along the way. Right. When I came out of Louisiana because Katrina had blown through and I had the Katrina patina on my patio furniture, there were people who lost everything. And money is being donated and people are coming to the cause and there's a tsunami now over there and they change their focus and there's something over there. But, you know, a family in Kansas that's alone when a tornado takes their house out, that's their Katrina. It is true that we all have these things. And I don't know where we lost our humanity in terms of a nation or a globe. That golden rule of treat others the way you want to be treated, it's kind of not as present these days. People just look away. Just the idea of us building walls instead of bridges and finding ways to divide each other and to pick a side and everything's to be so binary that half the people are wrong and it's not my people. Well, I do think that this amazing technology that we're all using right now and we have in our phones and all the the fact that we are wallowing in these stories 24-7, 365 days a year, and there's a constant stream of breaking news that's coming in front of us, I think there's a burnout. And then to circle back to my profession as a newspaper columnist and as a talk show host, I realize that both of those jobs are completely irrelevant. I, I am technically, as a newspaper columnist, an opinion columnist. Do you know anybody on earth that needs an opinion? That is right. opinion deprived. <laughs> Do you know where I could have somebody tell me what I should think about the G7 summit? I mean, it doesn't, that person doesn't exist because your Twitter feed, your Facebook comments, it's a nonstop stream of opinions. But you're admitting it. Okay, here's the funny thing. I like that you're admitting it because when they say breaking news, but it's an opinion show, I hate that. I hate uh, you pick anybody, any media outlet. And you go, wait a minute, you're not reporting any facts here. This is not the news. This is what you think will happen. If they do that, then what are we going to do about it? Those are just future casting. Yeah, and of course, you know, the way the cable news business, this is just a physical reality. I remember when there was this guy named Scott Peterson who was a fertilizer salesman who murdered his wife up in the Bay Area on Christmas Eve, his pregnant wife, you're like, and they covered this as if it was the OJ trial, as if it was like, or the Michael Jackson trials or something like a celebrity. They sent satellite trucks from all over the country. And I think even globally, there were camera crews up in the Bay Area to cover this thing. It went on for months and months and months. And you know, a story has jumped the shark when somebody ends up doing the, the, the segment where they show how many media people are there. They put the they turn their camera down the row of satellite trucks who are all there to cover the story. Because once the crews are dispatched, once a news director has committed the resources to go someplace, they have to cover that story. They've got people out on per diem, you know, staying at a, at a Best Western, eating meal money. So now it's going to be a story whether it justifies being a story or not. And when we buy into that stuff, I think then we start to buy into this news cycle mindset that has really made us kind of crazy. Uh, I, I, I just think that the less of it you watch, the less of it you consume, the healthier you are, which brings us back to creativity, because I know that I, once I hit 60, I became a lot less interested in winning arguments with strangers. Mm. Yeah, but that's funny how that habit you know. is as much as picking up a tennis racket to beat your you know, father-in-law in tennis. You're going to the coffee shop, you're doing all of those things kind of to, to find an argument to win at, at certain ages of your life. Yeah, and, you know, now it's like, well, I don't have that many years left, and it's like, do I, I just, in the, in the radio business, it became, unfortunately, unlike 
Gene Shepard, who was using the medium in an extraordinarily creative way, it unfortunately became constricted into news chewing. I used to call it a-hole patrol. Like you would look at the paper and say, who was an asshole last night? And then this morning we will identify that person for five hours. All right. And at some point you just go, look, we're just making people angrier. Nobody's mind is being changed. Nobody's learning anything. It's just bias confirmation. And if I have 10 years left where I'm viable in any way, shape, or form, I don't want to spend it doing this. You know, I want to do something else. Uh, and for me, it has been a blessing. Uh, for other people, it may not be, but I had other things that I wanted to do. All right. Well, I'm going to turn us back to another story that I want to hear. And this is one of the stories that uh, somewhere on your website, you say, if you come across me, uh, ask me to tell you the story. So I know nothing about the background of the story, but CBS had a series called A League of Their Own, which I'm sure was based on the movie. And this episode was being directed by Tom Hanks. And you say there's a story to be heard there. So what a great time for you to share it with all of us. Well, this is my only great show business story because I had worked with Lowell Gantz and Bob Mandel, who wrote A League of Their Own on a series earlier called Night and Day, Eight and Done on NBC. I got a phone call when I was working on some other show. I got a phone call from Lowell Gantz's assistant saying, Lowell, could you take a call from Lowell? I said, of course. I answered the phone. I go, hello. And he goes, all right, enough small talk. Uh, we're doing this thing. Do you want to do one? I go, yes. So I pitched an episode of A League of Their Own, and it's the girls' baseball team in the 40s. Sam McMurray was playing the Tom Hanks character. And Tom Hanks was directing the episode. It just fell that he was directing the episode. And the episode was Jimmy Dugan wins a monkey in a card game. They make it the mascot for the team. And the girls hate it because it's grabbing them in the shower and it smells bad. And Dottie Henson pulls the ball down third and hits the monkey and kills it. People tumble out of the stands, tend to the monkey. And Jimmy Dugan is yelling at her saying, you did that on purpose because the monkey was a big draw. You did this on purpose. And he said, no, I got jammed. And anyway, he turns to the person tending to the monkey and says, how is he? He goes, bad news, Mr. Dugan. He's dead. He says, you a veterinarian? No, I'm a welder, but I know a dead monkey when I see one. Lowell says, we're doing the dead monkey, okay? So we shoot it. We shoot the episode, Hanks directs, and it fell the week of the Academy Awards. And Hanks was a presenter this year. We had to shut down for a day so he could go to the Academy Awards. And the next day, we're back in rehearsal, and he says, you know, I was in the green room. Federico Fellini was in the green room, and I'm talking to Maestro Fellini, and he asked me what I'm doing. I said, well, I'm directing. And I told him, I'm directing. I'm directing this episode. And I told him what the story was about. And Mr. Fellini says, well, you can't kill the monkey. If you kill the monkey, the children will hate you. And then all the girls in the cast had been playing with the monkey for three days in rehearsals. And they said, yeah, he's so cute. So the next thing, the show gets rewritten to being a cute little monkey that got hurt. And on, on tape night, they didn't even put a head wrap on him in a crutch or something. He just comes in after being hit by the foul ball on the roll-ins. They had shot the stuff at the baseball field where he got hit. And the line, he's dead. I know a dead monkey when I see one. Got a huge laugh. But nonetheless, I started to think about realize... Fellini fucked my episode. Yeah. I don't go around telling him how he should be shooting his Italian dramas. He should have <laughs> left my show alone. That all end is tragedy, by the way. Yes. Well, well, the children, yes. Fellini ruined my episode via Tom Hanks. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I haven't heard a good Fellini ruined my episode story in a while. Exactly. I may be the possessor of the only one. <laughs> but you moved to Hollywood for those kinds of jobs, right? You wanted to be in film and television writing. And you, you made that trek, and uh, among your credits, it includes WKRP in Cincinnati. So there was always sort of a, a radio part of all of this as well, right? Yeah, well, like, again, going back to Gene, I wanted to be him. I still want to be him. And I so wish that I had had, I got to do WKRP after I worked at KBC, because then I would have had another 50 years of storylines. My first guys I ever worked for when I was in New York were Bob and Ray, and they were, of course, working in radio too. That was hugely... Ray Goulding used to come to our CYO baseball games, St. Aloysius. We were terrible. We were the Bad News Bears without getting Jodie Foster. We were horrible. But he would sit there. This is like 1966 or 65, and he had a Boston Red Sox warm-up jacket, which might not sound like anything today, but there was no merchandise in 1965. This was like a real Boston Red Sox with the elbow worn. 
And we thought, well, he's a scout for the Red Sox. What do we know? And then I realized, oh, that's the guy from Bob and Ray who went to, you know, he'd go to Mass at St. Aloysius. So when I got out of college, my partner at the time, Paul McDermott, we wrote a bunch of Bob and Ray sketches. And I, I ran into him. I, I stalked him at church. Talk about a sacrilege. And he says, well, we're at the Gray Bar building, so, you know, find us there. So that was my first road in. But Klugman, Jack Klugman is the one who actually brought me to Hollywood, ultimately. Yeah, and all of those things, when I hear them, they conjure up memories of the odd couple and other things that were really pivotal in my realizing that comedy and show business and humor had a place. Everything funny was getting my attention on television. And I, that was what my pilgrimage was about getting on the Johnny Carson show. You know, I was lucky to get on there before he had left the air. Being a kid from Nebraska, that was like getting anointed. You know, yes, of king. course. And Cavett was also Nebraska, wasn't he? Yeah, Dick Cavett was as well. And yeah. amazing storytellers, these guys. Maybe it was their un unassuming Midwesternness or something that m kept them from being too acerbic. Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the different branches of comedy, the streams that became modern comedy, the Mark Twains, the Will Rogers, the raconteurs, if you will, Ring Lardner, who wasn't a performer, but he wrote vernacular stories of illiterate ballplayers and, and sort of grifters. The Midwestern sensibility was more, I think, storytelling than the vaudevillians who came out of the Jewish tradition of comedy. And there's certainly Myron Cohen and many, many funny Jewish storytellers as well. But what we saw as sort of professional show business uh, grew up with network radio. You know, if you were a vaudevillian and you had a 17-minute act, you were a headliner, you could tour the country for your whole life with those 17 minutes. Uh, but then one appearance on the Kate Smith show and the whole country heard who's on first and now Abbott and Costello need something else to say. So they had to start hiring people to write for them and it created this new profession. And then it was sort of came to a head for me when I was watching the Dick Van Dyke show because there's Maury Amsterdam coming in and laying on a couch at work insulting the boss and that's a job? I mean, you can get paid to do that? It's a cut of a piece of that action. <laughs> right. Last summer, I had the opportunity to do a tribute to Carl Reiner who created the Dick Van Dyke show. And when I think about what my path has come from being a TV watcher to a TV writer to saluting folks that I grew up watching. It is really an amazing journey when you look in that back in that snow globe and go, how did this happen? How did I end up, you know, being in charge of a Carl Reiner salute? You did the Carson thing at the Museum of Comedy, right? I did, right. There was a, a reunion of Carson's favorite comedy acts. Yeah, I know Teresa Ganzel was up there, my yeah, pal. Yeah, she did a great job. And that was another one where that was so foundational to my life. And then to work with Johnny's nephew, Jeff Satsing, to put on the Johnny Carson salute was amazing. And I feel like we return to the, the lesson of this episode, which is the stick to -itiveness. Move towards the epicenter of your interest and stick around. Don't quit. I think that that's true for people who are successful at whatever they do, if they're whittlers. The thing is, if you have a passion for it, then you go to school on it and you try to absorb as much knowledge as you can from the past. And you can, you know, I know that people's heads might roll because they always want to be cutting edge and I get that. But there's an awful lot to learn from Buster Keaton. There's a lot to learn from Stan and Ollie. There's an awful lot to learn from Jackie Gleason. And if you, if you watch the masters, then you pick up a little bit here, a little bit there. And when you get to cross paths with them, you know, I got to spend a couple of weeks with Danny Simon, who was Neil Simon's older brother. And, you know, people don't realize, but The Odd Couple was his story. He started writing The Odd Couple and then hit a wall and gave it to Neil. And Neil gave him, I think, a point per page. I think he got 16 or 18 percent of The Odd Couple uh, for that. But uh, in fact, I will tell this now that everybody's long dead. The single ugliest incident in a rewrite room that sort of became legendary. Danny was directing two episodes of this Jack Klugman series called You Again, My First Job. And we had as our story consultants, Harvey Miller and Jerry Belson from The Odd Couple. Danny pitched a joke at the rewrite and it got crickets. No reaction. He got mad. He A pen throw. You know, he threw the pen down on the desk and said, God damn it. I'm the funniest person in this room. And Belson dropped a hammer on him. He said, Danny, you're not even the funniest person in your own family. 
Ooh. And it was like, <laughs> it was so brutal, nobody would even laugh. And, no, right. Oh, <laughs> you know, sorry. it was just brutal. Today you've named, and we've talked about Neil Simon, we've talked about John Cleese, we've talked about Steve Martin, Tom Hanks, all of these people helped form what I believe is the currency of comedy that allows us to continue to perpetuate this because it is an elixir that everybody wants to laugh and to feel hopeful going into the next day. We can't sit and watch the news and survive this. We have to have a sense of humor. Oh, I totally agree. All the conversation about AI and chat GPT and uh, all of the what's coming. And, and it's probably true that chat GPT and AI could write jokes if you have enough data entry points. But what they can't do is they can't do a slow burn like Jimmy Finlinson. They can't look into the camera and go, the way Oliver Hardy did. You can't write on paper, Jackie Gleason learns the mambo and know that you're going to get three minutes of network television out of that, out of that stage direction. That's where the artist is. And I think Mel Brooks talked about writing for Sid Caesar, and he described it as, well, I write the notes, but he's the virtuoso who will play them. That's the, the great collaboration between a writer and a great performer. Uh, and I've talked to Lowell Gantz about this, that, he, yeah, he and Babalu wrote There's No Crying in Baseball, but Tom Hanks is the one who saw that line and made it what it is, and they'd be the first ones to tell you that. They didn't envision it being what it became, Yeah, that this great actor saw a line and ran with it. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing. It could never be unheard. It's like the right lyrics to the right melody. Right. Yeah, and I think that collaboration is what I consider to be a birthing process. And the, the child doesn't quite look like either of the parents, but it's better than them both. Yeah, but it better look like one of them. <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be some therapy down the road. <laughs> That's right. Hey, listen, let me encourage the listener to explore Frank's shadow and also to go to your website to find out more, DougMcIntyre.com, where they can find columns and hear the turkey story in full. Doug, thank you for investing the time today. It's great to get to know each other a little bit better. Pat, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I've always been a fan, and I really enjoyed getting to chat with you. And by the way, Doug talks too much. About his book. Exactly. Frank Shadow, by the way. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.